The Right Hook Podcast. With the Mitsubishi Commercial Range, Pajero Executive, Pajero Commercial, Outlander Business and new L200. All with a leading five-year commercial warranty. MitsubishiMotors.ie Happy Wednesday. George Hook here uh, with The Right Hook on Newstalk. Here are some of the best bits that you might have missed on today's programme. This morning, the Construction Industry Federation and the Irish Home Builders Association had a seminar in Dublin. The central question, of course, um, the uh, issue of construction of houses. After we heard, for instance, in our news bulletin that the rate of homelessness would, in fact, be increasing now at a crisis point, surely, of one family per day being made homeless. I'm joined by uh, the Assistant Professor of Economics who spoke at the uh, conference this morning uh, at Trinity College Dublin, uh, and he is also an economist at daft.ie, Ronan Lyons. Uh, Ronan, welcome to the programme. Thanks for having me on, George. Uh, Why are we talking about this? Why aren't we doing something? Well, I suppose before we do something, we need to agree on what the right thing to do is. And there's been a lot of different, uh, I suppose, solutions and problems um, suggested or identified over the last uh, few months, indeed 18 months probably at this stage. And I think this morning's session was trying to get a whole different uh, different players, including the, the, the quantity surveyors who know various issues around costs. Some of the policymakers were there. Uh, some people from the banks were there as well. And then there was other people such as myself. Uh, and to see if there's any agreement on what the problems are. And therefore, if you know what the problem is and you agree on what the problem is, then you can start thinking about the solution. Um, so we know at a high level that there are not enough homes being built. But then the question is, is, is why? Given the country needs so many, why aren't we seeing homes being built? And the short answer is that the the cost relative to our own incomes, the cost of building homes is too high. That's the easy bit. The tough bit then is to identify what's actually going on that that yeah. caused that to happen. Uh, but, but hold on a while. We're, like building houses, the vast majority of us don't know how to lay a brick upon a brick or put in, uh, you know, water or, or whatever. We don't know how to do that. One thing we do know uh, is it's an economic activity. And you're the assistant professor of economics at Trinity College. And the first thing you learned as a rookie economics student was the law of supply and demand. Now, what we have here is we clearly have a a substantial demand, either because people aren't living in houses, they're homeless, or because people want to buy houses uh, and they can't for whatever reason. It's a simple problem of economics, surely, before we ever get to... uh, the question of, of building a house. The price must reflect the demand. No, isn't that the first principle? It is, and you're, you're dead right. The, uh, uh, if we look at the market as a whole, what's happening? How do we link up all these different bits, such as uh, growing homelessness, uh, students lacking accommodation, people commuting from significantly greater distances now than two or three or four years ago? All of these things come back to exactly what you say. The fact that we have a growing population, so we've got growing demand for housing. And in the healthy housing sector, when you've growing demand, you've new homes being built. We're not seeing that. So in your second lesson in, in, in Econ 101, you go, uh, so first lesson is supply and demand. The second lesson is price and cost. You're never going to see supply if price is less than cost. Yeah, I, okay, I agree. But like, they've been building houses now since Caesar was a young lad. So therefore, the, the reason people build houses, the reason they do anything, is to make a profit. Why is it considered... Uh, so awful that a builder wants to make a profit? Oh, I, I don't think it's awful at, at all. I, I, I think if, you, if we look, say, if we take a project right now, so Ireland needs, and Dublin in particular, needs new apartments built. And if you were to, to get a site, one acre site, and put apartments on it, you couldn't cover all your costs, including a 15% margin for the developer, which is a fair cost. Um, you couldn't build those apartments and charge anything less than a €1,200 a month in rent. And if you put in side costs, you're really talking about 1600 or more in, in monthly rent to break even. And that's getting a return for the developer. Now, if you look at two-bed rents across the country, uh, in West Dublin, they're about 1000 In Cork, they're about 800 In Limerick and Waterford, they're 600 we are so far from being viable that the problem now is we have to open up this 
cost base and figure out what on earth has gone wrong over the last 10 years that we've priced ourselves out of our own homes, uh, for, particularly for those who don't have accommodation currently. But uh, Sorry, Ronan, but uh, like the thing is, uh, I'm being very... I'm going to get attacked in a few minutes, but anyway, we still have to say it nevertheless. Like, if you can't afford to buy a car, you don't buy a car. Isn't that right? If you can't afford to go on holiday, you don't buy a hol- you don't go on holiday. Now, in in relation to housing, surely the first thing is that the price of the house must actually reflect the cost plus profit, and then what happens is whether people can afford to pay it or not. But that's a different problem. They're not. They can't be linked together. Surely. Well, I mean, the way I see the housing market, and you're right, like, we have, suppose we've got the population and we say, what fraction of the population do we think is never going to be able to afford their own accommodation? And maybe it's the, it's the, the, the lowest uh, earning third of the country won't be able to afford to cover the cost of their accommodation. But the rest should be able to. So if you take someone who's you know, 35% or 40% or 50% of the way up the income distribution, what do they earn? And if you take a family that earns 45000 a year, they can spend sustainably. They can spend no more than a thousand euro uh, a month on accommodation. But that, as, if you go back to the numbers I gave a couple of minutes ago, that doesn't even cover the cost of a two-bed apartment, let alone something more generous. So you're you're right. It's about figuring out what we can afford and then cutting our cloth cloth to measure. Okay. But but where Vincent Brown tells me every night if I watch him that we're one of the wealthiest countries in the world, right? When we weren't one of the wealthiest countries in the world, when we were poor, uh, and the world was in recession, and we had emigration, everything else, we the the government succeeded in building houses so that the people who couldn't afford it could live in subsidised housing. Uh, corporation housing, as we described that. We're, we're not doing that anymore. So isn't the government, to solve this crisis, doesn't the government have to build houses? I think the, the government com- went completely the wrong direction when they expected the market to provide social housing. You know, 20% was the, you know, you, you put aside 20% of the homes that are built for social housing. And when 100,000 homes are being built a year, there's plenty. But when no homes are being built by the market, you've no social housing. And that's completely the wrong way of doing it. Whether, what we have now, what we sorry, what we, we should be uh, putting in place is a system that does actually provide more social housing when times are tough. And then when times are good, there's less social housing needed. I would be wary of the government building estates and only having those on lower incomes there. We've seen problems that can arise uh, from that. I'd be more in favour of, of mixed housing. And the way the government does that, it's quite similar to what you're suggesting. But instead of directly providing the homes itself, it uses housing bodies. These would be uh, organisations like Cluid or Tua or Respond. Yeah. They provide the housing. And, and by subsidising, by connecting up what people earn, with the cost of construction, the government effectively provides the collateral for those housing bodies to go and borrow and build the homes we need. All right, but but in the middle of, of what I, I... I heard Peter McFerry today, and I must say I agree with him, like, this is catastrophic, what we are now in, that we're, a family is, is, is homeless every single day of the year. And the answer, I gather, is that tomorrow, Dahlern will appoint a committee... Now, do you seriously suggest that a committee is going to fix this problem? No, but for those of us who think we have part of the solution, it will be important for us to know to have someone to talk to. So uh, I don't think maybe a committee when we don't have a government is the way to go. But when the new government does uh, take office, having someone to talk to, whether it's a minister for housing or a minister for construction or whatever it is, that can actually make decisions for too long We've had a Minister for Health and a Minister for Education. They live or die politically by what happens in those sectors. But housing falls between too many stools. It's Department of Environment or Department of Finance or Central Bank or even Department of Justice, which regulates the state agents. We don't have any coordination on housing. And therefore, it's no surprise if it's nobody's number one priority that it's ended up being the mess that it is. All right. But I'm a pain in my butt now from saying this. And I'm now going to say it for the umpteenth time. At the end of World War Two, the then Labour government saw it had a housing shortage because housing was all the houses being bombed. It turned around and it put one guy in charge. And they said to him, you sort it. He wasn't even a minister. He was an ordinary MP. But he was he was a czar of housing. 
I mean, isn't that what we need? Like, if you were facing a crisis in any other aspect of our life, that's what we'd be doing. I, I completely agree. And, and I think now with it, um, the only sort of silver lining to the problems that we're seeing uh, grow over the last six months is that pretty much everyone has agreed that this has to be, if not number one, certainly the top two or three priorities for the new government has to be housing and making sure we're building enough homes. Given we have, it, it's sort of ironic that we've turned a good news story. We're one of the few developed countries in the world that enjoys a rapidly growing population. Um, and that's a sign of economic success. But it, it, it turns into a problem if you don't build in new homes. Uh, and and that's we've we've managed to turn it into a problem in perhaps a peculiarly Irish way. So we need to turn that good news story back into a good news story by getting lots of new homes built. And political will is a key part of that. All right. But if, for instance, when Michael Noonan looked at, at the tourism industry and he said, look, we have a crisis in tourism industry. We're too expensive. They won't come. He reduced the VAT rate on hotels or restaurants or whatever the heck it was. Lo and behold, uh, the people came. You know, and it may have come for other reasons, but you know what I mean. Don't you therefore, if you say the builders won't build because for it's economically uh, not feasible, or if they do it, they, nobody will be able to afford it at the price they have charged to make a profit, don't you then, and this is economic engineering and you may disagree, doesn't the government then have to make it uh, viable to build houses that we can buy and live in. Well, I, I do think it is the responsibility of government to understand what's gone wrong. And it's, you know, it's possible that the high rate of that is, is blocking it. I, I don't think that's the, the silver bullet. I think if you lower the VAT rate from whatever it is, 13.5% down to 9%, you would probably knock about €10,000 off the cost of building as the, as the, the builder sees it. But that €10,000 is not enough to, to turn whole loads of unviable projects viable. The, the problem is deeper than that. And I would be worried that uh, you know, the government would pass a measure like that and assume everything's OK. Uh, it wouldn't be OK if we just cut VAT or cut levies. And in fact, there's a, there's a risk that then you, you end up losing revenue for the taxpayer. I'd be much more interested in the government uh, listening to, for example, also at this morning's workshop, we had um, the Society of Chartered Surveyors. They have new detailed figures on the cost of building. How does that compare to other countries? Where are we sticking out? Where are we clearly going wrong? And, and once we can understand that, then we can take the steps. But until we do that, everyone's sort of shouting their own solution, um, but okay. nobody's actually uh, got, the, got the whole picture. All right. Uh, I'm not sure we'll have a picture tomorrow when the committee is formed, but uh, my guest, Assistant Professor of Economics at Trinity College Dublin, and also economist with DAF.ie, Ronan Lyons. Uh, Billy says our useless government is washing its hand of house building, water supply, refuse collection, and road repairs. You're absolutely right. It's gas. Uh, it has to be a handout by the government. Free houses. It's useless talking about cost. Free houses, Tony. <laughs> Give me a break. John says, why do we never talk about reducing the cost of building, wages, materials? Well, Ronan did. That's the very point he made. Comparisons with other countries. Um, why on earth do we seek thousands of apartments in groups of hundreds to farm banks? Or why do we sell? And vulture capitalists making rent too expensive. And now people are sleeping on the streets, says Mary Lou. And she isn't. Her name isn't MacDonald. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie uh, we still can't or probably will not for a long time forget the death of a, a fighter in the MMA at the National Stadium on Saturday night, Joe Carvalho. Now, I'm joined by Neil Keegan, who's a member of the Black Rock MMA gym, because Neil contacted me and he wanted to talk, as he put it, on or off the air. So I thought, well, why not do it on the air? Neil, welcome to the programme. Thanks for having me, George. You've called my blood here on the air not off the air yeah well shoot what did you want to say to me well it's you know what i found was when something horrific like this happens which it is obviously horrific generally the first people to talk are the people who have the least amount of knowledge on the topic a lot of times and i think partly what's happened is uh, a lot of people have talked about certain things that happened on saturday night that didn't actually happen they kind of had this visual uh, visualization in their head of what actually two men in a cage is and then the medical stuff afterwards which 
you had the uh, the man from Code Blue on yesterday, which was fantastic. And I think, uh, you know, certainly in terms of people coming at me on Twitter about it, it calmed down quite a bit after your interview with uh, with that guy. Now, you're um, an MMA fighter, boxer, athlete. How do you describe I, well, it? Well, it's just like playing rugby or whatever it is I do. You train twice a week in Thai boxing, which is it's Western boxing with knees and elbows and kicks obviously thrown in as well. And then MMA adds a few more uh, things to the mix. Exactly. There's judo, there's jiu-jitsu, different types of ground fighting that's uh, that's added in to, to all of that. It, okay. So I've campaigned uh, for quite a long time about brain injury mm-hmm. in sport. Mm-hmm. Uh, later on, we're going to be talking to somebody about dying from playing soccer. We've talked about rugby. What We know more now. This is the important thing. We know more about the brain and the damage to the brain. The problem, I think, for some people is, and I, I would be included in that, I find it difficult to watch boxing. So therefore, mm-hmm. I find it doubly difficult Absolutely. to watch MMA, therefore. Uh, it's pretty brutal. It can be seen that way. And I think um, there, there's two things I would say to that. Number one, it's it's basically a brand new sport. Okay, like it's in terms of regulation and sanctioning around the world, it's probably less than two decades old in the form we have it now. So people are still shocked, if, if that's the word, when you see, for example, the end of that fight on Saturday night. You know, it's to, to people who are used to maybe boxing or, you know, they could be used, fighting may not be their thing no matter what. You know, rugby may not be their thing no matter what. Uh, but they were shocked by what they saw. Whereas someone who's been watching the sport, um, which isn't everyone, it's it's growing, but they would have seen what the referee was doing just in that example, which I don't really like using it because something horrific happened, but we have to use it. There was a certain protocol that was followed in that fight, which to someone who, if that was the first time they ever tuned into an MMA fight or first event they ever went to, it's going to completely turn them off because they don't know the rules. They don't know what's going on. Yeah, you see... I don't blame anybody here, sure. right? Uh, because uh, we now know that brain damage occurs in number of sports: mm-hmm. Gaelic football, rugby, and and soccer. In actual football, has its elements of it. Mm-hmm. Clearly, if somebody punches you to the head, your brain's going to spin around, mm-hmm. and. In fact, punch drunkenness is the oldest uh, uh, phrase in the book, going back Mm. the best part of a century about boxing. And now we have MMA. I think part of the problem, because it was raised by a neurologist before these events took place, Dan Healy, is the fact that it is unregulated. That's the primary issue that many people would have. Uh, well, uh, absolutely, and regulation is 100% the answer to everything, you know, in terms of sports. Wh- whatever sport it is, regulation is always the answer, but uh, to it's not completely the opposite in terms of, uh, you know, the Irish MMA scene. It's not unregulated. There's no, it's not like there's no doctors, there's people thrown in there, and that's it. That's not the way it is. So I think there's a certain amount of disinformation that's going around. You know, people will always try to scare people out of certain things. It happens with rugby, it happens with every sport. Uh, you know, in terms of, of Saturday night, just it's the most recent example, uh, the medical care there was better than the last rugby match I played, for example, which was nowhere near a high level, very bad level. Um, for example, the care that the guys got pre and post fight was higher than uh, any GAA match local club. No, no, I would absolutely so, accept that. But, like, I'd like to personalise it, if you don't sure, mind, sure. Uh, because my guest um, is obviously a keen fan of MMA himself, as you heard, a Thai boxer, uh, Neil Keegan. He's a member of the Black Rock MMA jam. Like... You mm-hmm. uh, partake in a sport in which you receive repeated blows to the head, yes? Yeah. Whether whether a boxer or a Thai Absolutely, boxer or yeah, MMA, yeah. you receive repeated blows to the head. You're comfortable enough with that. Well, it, it is like anything you do in life, okay? If you choose to do something, you know going in and, and you know, especially when you get to the higher levels, which is where the guys were on Saturday, uh, and then the step up, you know, into kind of the Bama end of things and then into the UFC, everyone knows the, um, the, the the chance of what can happen. Obviously, you know, you don't want certain things. Like if you go for surgery, you've got to sign away. No, but you, you didn't really answer the question. So I'm going to ask you again, not okay. in a kind of catch out way, but sure. I think it's quite interesting for people listening. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, 
because my grandchildren play rugby mm-hmm. and I know that they 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 receive blows. Sure. But in in boxing and its allied sports, if we can call MMA yep, sure. allied sports sure. or Thai boxing, the purpose of the exercise is to knock ten shades off the other guy by repeated blows to the head. There is no and 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 boxing goes back two centuries yeah. to bare knuckle boxing. There's no other sport which essentially does that, where the purpose of the argument is to knock the guy unconscious. The purpose is to win. Now, everything else is a byproduct of you trying to win a fight. Yes. So, like, there's, it's, whereas boxing, you've got one tool. You've got your fists. you got, well, two tools. You've got your fists. Yes. And generally, you're going to punch someone in the head. But you can get kicked in the head or kneed in Absolutely, the head. Absolutely, but... but in terms and then in MMA, you can be choked into Absolutely. unconsciousness. Absolutely. And, and none of this is obviously the ideal outcome for you uh, if you're going into one of these fights, but... You know that if you, in MMA, for example, there's a thing called the tap out. So if you have me in a chokehold or whatever and I don't want to continue, I just tap twice, the referee will stop the fight. Sure. This is the same as in wrestling, the idea of conceding. It's not 100%, right to tap yeah, as well. Exactly. So you're you in see, control my, of a lot of But explain to me, the fight in which the tragedy occurred, mm-hmm. these were professionals, were they? Uh, they were they were kind of on the brink. They you know okay. uh, they they were as close to professional as you can get. But yeah. they weren't with the at the McGregor level Absolutely where he's going to earn no, ten million. Or yeah, whatever. they're quite yeah, okay. they're quite a di- but that that's the dream. Like that, everyone is 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 doing this to to. to but get you to that don't point. get paid. I don't. You fight for nothing. You're well, an amateur in that sense. Well, what I, what, the way I do it is uh, I don't. You don't need to answer that question. You're essentially an amateur, though. Is oh, absolutely, hundred percent. Yeah, yeah it's okay. not my. It's not my day. I don't pay the rent. By, exactly. By, yeah, that's yeah, the point yeah. I'm trying to make. So. The the thing is that for no appreciable pecuniary advantage, you, mm-hmm. you're you willing to take the risk that at age 50, you might be able to remember your name. 100%. Well, that might be an issue at the age of 50 anyway. But yeah, like I think I'm no going into a training set. Like I think the difference is there's training and there's fighting. Training is an all-inclusive. So you don't fight? Well, I, I could fight if I want to. I'm no, but you to, don't. Oh, well, I've had fights up to this point, okay. but I don't do it every week like, okay. you know, some of these guys. So, uh, you know, f- but the training aspect of it is, is is very welcoming, very safe, very similar to the vibe I had in the rugby club. Uh, the the uh, the. But but I I'm sorry for pushing you, but sure, but push I, away. I because it's 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 I think you whether you fight or whatever yeah. you you get repeated blows to the head, yeah. which the evidence is now incontrovertible. That for some people, not everybody, this yep, is the yeah, yeah. difficult thing. You and I can get the same blows, and our brains can react sure. in a different way. You're okay with that. I, I've made that choice to go training and do I mean. that. Yes, yeah. exactly. So as an adult, now, if I was if I was 10 years old, it's a yeah. completely different story. Sure. But me as a grown-up, as an but adult. But you're okay with it. Yeah, well, I'm okay with it because, like, you know, I'm in control of a lot of this in terms of if I was an MMA fighter in the cage on Saturday night. Yeah. I'm in control of a certain amount of this. Uh, whereas if I feel uh, I'm unable to continue, there's a tap. Um, I can say it to my corner, but I also think the big thing, which is what I was going to bring in here today, Dude. was I think, much like rugby and football and all these other sports, the referees, there's only a handful of elite referees. Yeah. Whereas if you could do this, whether it's regulated or not, regulation will take time. We could have the guys from Code Blue come in and show what the signs of trauma are, for example. I know yeah. it's different in each, peop- in each person, but you can tick a lot of boxes Absolutely. by doing that. So that means that, uh, for example, like the Eubank, Chris Eubank fight the other week, um, there were doctors who were saying that that fight shouldn't have made it, you know, it should have been stopped three rounds prior. Because Eubank's father was actually saying, don't hit him. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And and I think, you know, if the referee in that case and on Saturday and in, you know, wherever else uh, an issue occurs, if they're able to spot signs of trauma, you know, a change in behaviour, a change in movement, you know, because you may be lucid. Uh, he was lucid after the fight. He He went and did the medical and it was five minutes after that that he started feeling but, bad. But the you know? worry for, for people is that essentially we're talking about non-regulated sport. Everything else, like if you write in the Grand National or the Punchestown three-day festival sure. or you play soccer, or rugby, there is regulation. Sure. What, well, what worries people most, I think, is the lack of regulation. Absolutely. And what's happening at the moment is that uh, Conor McGregor's coach is, is, has started the IAPA and he's trying to get regulation. So it, it's not like people are actively avoiding it. He is trying to move forward in terms of regulation. 
Ten years from now, do you think MMA will be uh, a, a popular sport watched by thousands of people on television? Well, it, dep- it, it all depends on one person, which is very rare in, in any kind of sport. It all depends on one person. If Conor McGregor keeps doing what he's doing or, or keeps making noise in what he's doing, the gyms are going to be full and people are going to keep doing this. Okay, we're not going to be full of me, but then uh, James wouldn't be full of me nowadays. <laughs> anyway, thank you so much for coming in Cheers, and, and uh, increasing our knowledge of a sport that so many of us know very little about. Neil Keegan, member of the BlackRock MMA gym. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie Welcome back to The Right Hook with George Hook. Well, this programme has been deeply conscious of the dangers to sportsmen and women of head injuries in their chosen field. With the latest news that three of England's 1966 World Cup squad, Martin Peters, Nobby Stiles and Ray Wilson, all now have their early dementia and Alzheimer's, the Football Association has asked the FIFA to investigate uh, the very issue of brain trauma in soccer. And uh, I spoke earlier in the week to Don Astle, whose father, Jeff, at West Bromwich Albion, was probably the greatest header of a ball the game had ever seen up to that point. And uh, Jeff, of course, sadly died with early dementia. And Don talked to me about his relationship with the West Brom fans. Yes, he was. The um, the West Brom fans called him the king. Um, and you're right, yes, he was um, mostly known for, for his heading ability. And when he was a young lad, as, as first starting out as a footballer, he was at Notts County. And he was taught to head a ball uh, by the late, great Tommy Lawton. I, I think, I'm not, I'm not 100% sure, but I think he may well be one... And I can't think there'll be many, that many more who've done this who've actually probably scored more goals with their head than with their feet. Because we're talking about the Football um, Association talking to FIFA about heading the ball, there's increasing evidence about heading the ball uh, causing brain damage, critically, of course, uh, for the 1966 players and for your dad, a different kind of football. When it got wet, it was like a concrete block. Um, so if it's not too painful, tell me about your father's death. Um, well, Dad was first diagnosed with having early onset Alzheimer's when he was 55. Um, and he he just started saying a bit strange things. He'd ask um whether his mum was still alive and you know my grand- grandmother had died 20 years before and um, in 1998 uh, my son was born and his name was Matthew and dad kept asking what his name was and, it, and it's not an unusual name um, and it was just little things really that just made you think you know you know what's going on um, and he became very restless um, he he couldn't sit still for, you know, 10 seconds. He'd be up and down and up and down. And, and I remember going to Mum's one time and we were, we were watching the match on the telly and Dad, Dad said to me, what's the score? And I said, it's one non-Dad. And then within 30 seconds, he'd say again, what's the score? And I said, I've told you it's one non-Dad. And my dad was actually very, very fit and um, he didn't actually think there was anything wrong with him. But mum was getting more and more concerned. Um, so she asked him to go to the doctors. And he wouldn't go because, as I said, he didn't think there was anything wrong with him. He had no idea there was anything wrong. Um, so they did, a, a, like, a quite a short test. And before they did this test, the doctor <clears throat> asked him, they actually said to him, Jeff, now I want you to remember a name and an address. And it was something quite, quite simple, like Mrs Smith of Blackpool. And then she started to do some tests and she would tap the pencil twice on the table and Dad would have to do it twice back. And they're all little tests he did and she asked him. And Dad, Dad actually passed those tests with flying colours. So much so that Mum actually was in the same room, actually thought, oh, it must be me. You know, he's, he's actually, he's fine. But then she said to him, right, Jess, what was that name and address I asked you to remember? 
And Mum said he sat there and he, he looked around and he put his hand on his chin and, oh, oh now, what was it? What was it? And he actually said to me, Mum, what was that address, Lorraine? And the doctor said, oh, no, Jeff, you can't ask your wife. You know, you've got to answer it yourself. Um, but he couldn't remember. So they did some tests and scans uh, following in this and they said that Dad's frontal brain cells were dying and there was basically there was nothing anybody could do um we know the brain doesn't regenerate there's no brain transplant and it's a process that's irreversible and he was actually diagnosed at 55 uh, with dementia um early onset alzheimer's and from that day the disease took more of a hold of him as uh, the weeks and months passed and he would try and eat things that weren't edible he would he would try and get out of a moving car. And I suppose, in a way, he just became socially um, unacceptable. Um, as I said, he was in, in incredibly restless. He became aggressive at times. And then, as the disease got a more hold of him, he then became afraid to go outside. And um, on hot, sunny days, you couldn't, Mum couldn't have a window open in the house. Um, and I suppose over the last year, uh, the disease really did yeah. take a hold. And... You know, he lost the ability to recognise me and my children um, and me and my sisters. Um, and we lost a little part of him every day, really, and, and endured, as as the families of, of the other players know, the pain and, and the helplessness, I suppose, of, of seeing your hero taken away. You, your dad was diagnosed at 55, died at 59. Um, his death was pretty horrific, though, for, for, for you, his children and his wife. Wasn't it? I mean, the, oh. the, the the end was 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 pretty awful, wasn't oh, it? Oh, it was it, the most. It, I say fourteen years on, and it and it still haunts me. Um, Dad, um, Dad actually died on my birthday, and he he we just buried, believe it or not, we just buried my mum's mum, and everybody was coming to my house, my sisters and and their children, and we were going to just have a little birthday tea, you know, not much, but just something for us all and I can see dad now when he walked in he was he was 59 and uh, you know as true as I'm stood here he looked 159 you know he was he was very grey and gaunt and he shuffled and he walked with a stoop um and he started to to cough um and the coughing got worse and we all tried to his legs was giving away and the we were trying to hold him up, and, and, and you could see he was trying to be sick. And we were trying to get him to, you know, to, to, to spit the sick out, I suppose. And, and he, but he just couldn't do it. He, he, he wouldn't open his mouth. His teeth were gritted together. We were screaming at him, absolutely screaming. Dad, you know, spit it out, spit it out. And, you know, he, he couldn't do it. And I think with his brain was so damaged. And when it was, when it was uh, re-examined in uh, May last year, and the, the consultant neuropathologist who re-examined the brain and found this disease in it, Boxer's brain, um, that he didn't actually have Alzheimer's. He had, he had a chronic traumatic encephalopathy, which is just a new name for Boxer's brain. He actually said if he hadn't have known that my dad was 59, he'd have thought he was looking at the brain of a man of in his 80s or even his 90s. He was that badly damaged. So, yeah, we, we sat and watched our dad choke to death in front of us and um, it was the most horrific thing I've ever seen in my life. My guest is Dawn Astell, daughter of the great Jeff Astell of West Brom in England, one of the great headers of the ball, who, as you've heard Dawn say, and so graphically describe what it was like her father being diagnosed with the early onset of Alzheimer's at 55. And now we have news of the 66 squad, Peter, Stiles, Wilson, all with Alzheimer's. Heading the ball, uh, had, there is no doubt now we are certain, uh, is part of that cause. Because, Dawn, the coroner, in fact, because... He actually said, didn't he, at the inquest, that it was the repetitive concussions caused by heading the ball, and he used concussion with a small c, the come repetitive impact that had caused your father's death. Oh, yes. Um, this was back in the coroner's court was on the 11th of November 2002, so 10 months after Dad died, and a leading uh, pathologist stood in the court and described how badly Dad's brain, how badly damaged Dad's brain was. Um, and he actually said that there was 
considerable evidence of trauma to the brain, which was similar to the brain of a boxer. And he said that the main candidate for the trauma was heading the heavy balls. And you're right, it was a repeated trauma that appeared to be the problem. And then, of course, Her Majesty's coroner, Andrew Haig, he actually said that Mr Astor's type of dementia was entirely consistent with heading a ball and the occupational exposure has made at least a significant contribution to the disease which yeah. had caused his death and the verdict was industrial disease. So in other words, in layman's terms, Dad's job had killed him. But Dawn, um, that was 2002. Um, here we are in 2016, 14 years later, uh, after that damning verdict on heading the ball. The latest information, for instance, um, from Indiana University, that uh, a goalkeeper's kick-out, either from the hand or ground, is invariably headed back by defenders, of course, on the full. And Indiana University has now discovered that is the equivalent to being hit by a heavyweight boxer. Why with this evidence and the recurring evidence of what happened in the United States in American football, why are we still in denial? Well, that, that's a big question, isn't it, George? I think um, I think that uh, sporting authorities, whatever authority it is, they're more interested in protecting the product, and it should be about protecting the players. Um, and as you say, it's it's fourteen years on, and apart from the <clears throat> the new guidelines out on concussion, um, we haven't really moved forward on the impacts of of heading balls and also instances of dementia in former footballers. Um, because there are many, many, you know, I spoke about Tommy Lawton a while ago who taught my dad. He died of Alzheimer's. Um, there are players, we've got a player from the 80s who never played with a heavy ball. He's just been diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's. Players from the 70s. Um, I think it's a, it'll be the tip of a very, very yes. big iceberg. For us, of course, in Ireland, the great Danny Blanchflower um, died of, of dementia. Dawn, uh, Dawn Astle, daughter of... Uh, the, the greatest header of a ball the English game has seen, Jeff Astle. Uh, the, the current position, you're a member of the Jeff Astle Foundation. What are you trying to achieve? Well, the Jeff Astle Foundation was, we, it was basically started because we wanted a, a lasting legacy for Dad. I, I suppose our motto as such is supporting the past and educating for the future. So we want football to recognise what these players and what these four poor families are going through putting the proper support and financial help if they're needed and also um, educating, not scaremongering, just educating about the dangers of, of head injury in sport full stop. Um, you know, we, as I said, the, the concussion guidelines are out there and it, at, at all levels, including grassroots, and to look at the signs and symptoms of, of different, um, of concussion, which is a concussion is a brain injury. But when it comes to heading the ball, that's actually classed as sub-concussive. It's a sub-concussive injury. We were actually in the very early stages of having some brain cards um, produced um, with, the, with the Jeff Astor Foundation to go out to grassroots football, you know, to, 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 to highlight the signs and the symptoms for not just kids playing the game, but their parents and coaches, because it's so important. It's, it's the most delicate, the most fragile the most complex organ in the body, and, and we need to look after it. Don, thank you so much. Um, one thing will happen, of course. Your father's legacy may be crucially important to young children playing football today in my country and in yours. Don Astle, daughter of the greatest header of ball the English game has ever seen, Jeff Astle. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie Welcome back uh, to The Right Hook with me, George Hook. Well, a new study from the University of California has suggested that roughly three-quarters of mothers and indeed fathers admit to having a favourite child. I can't believe this is uh, viewed as uh, new stuff. Uh, but my guest, Carol Hunt, is columnist with the Sunday Independent uh, and is also a contender for the NUI, Shannon Seat, her and 29 others. Carol Hunt, welcome to the programme. Thank you very much, George. Um, now, 
I'm surprised, I must say, that it took the University of California this long to discover that parents have a favourite child. Don't we all? Well, no, we're not supposed to admit it anyway. Oh, That's what you. I'm most surprised at, <laughs> that they actually came out. Three quarters of, of the mothers came out and actually admitted. And, and then I thought, well, maybe it's, you know, they're the old style families where you have 10 children. So, of course, you're going to have one favourite. But it was actually families with two children. So they actually said that one child they preferred over the other. How many have you got? I have two children. I have, as I tell them every day, I tell my son, you're my favourite son. And I tell my daughter, you're my favourite daughter. OK, and I have three. So, ah, um, so you have you, you, you're right. conflicted then. Well, let's talk about this. The part, I think the the study slightly was skewed by media. Dare I suggest to a journalist, because what it also was talking about was the role of the firstborn relative to subsequent children. Yes, I, and I think this is really important. I am the second. I'm a, I'm a middle child and my, my older brother, um, certainly we would have all said that the extra three of us would have said that he was initially the favourite child but that comes with a lot of complications in that he has the most responsibility. Um, he was the one that was judged much harsher, I think, than the rest of us. He had to do everything first. And I think it's very difficult to be a first child. I, th- I You know, they say that the middle children don't get as much attention. I think that's true. But I think that's also a good thing because we can get away with much more. I, I met somebody quite recently who was one of 13, you know. And I said, how the hell did a family survive with 13 children? And they made the very obvious comment that each sort of generation of children raised the next one. Now, I'm sure you as a parent, when you had your first and when I had my first, I had to read Dr. Spock. And, you know, you were terrified that they had meningitis and all this sort of thing. By the t- in my case, by the time 13, Third one came around. I didn't care whether she had dirt in the streets or not. So that aspect yes. of the study is correct, isn't it? It is, absolutely. But then again, it can work a different way. My younger sister is, there's 10 years between her and the next child up. And we used to say, isn't it fantastic? You know, you didn't get as much um, uh, hardship or, or, or from our parents. They'd already known how to parent and they let you away with an awful lot more. And she said it was much more difficult because she had two older brothers and she said she basically she had three fathers. Each were as strict as the other watching what she did. Yeah, but get back to the favourite thing. We, okay, we don't admit it, but you have a different relationship with each child. Oh, yes, absolutely. And, and, and I think understanding that, that it depends on timing and where you are in your life. Yeah. And also children experience things differently. Um, myself and my siblings will all often discuss this, the exact same events and how our parents act, and we would all have a different imp- interpretation of what was going on. Because as a parent... The child is born at a different part of your life. Mm-hmm. So if a child is born during a particularly difficult part of your life because of illness or, or unemployment or a zillion reasons, then the relationship with that child is going to be quite different from the relationship with the child at a, at a, a happier time, say, exactly. or a less stressful And time. it's trying to figure that out, you know, yeah. a separation, you know. And again, it's not taking it personally that it's all about circumstance and context. And it isn't personal a lot of the time. It's just how things are. But it can be very, very hard to do that if you're the child who's experiencing, you know, if they think they're experiencing a loss of attention or a loss of love or they have to compete with their my, my older daughter every other day says that her life was ruined the day my, my son was born. All right. But I remember... I can remember very soon after my first child was born, I happened to go to Britain for for a work thing. And somebody said, oh, congratulations on your child. Uh, Is it a boy or a girl? I said, a girl. And like all rugby fellows, of course, I'd been hoping for a sort of Paul O'Connell type figure. But he said, daughters are much better for fathers. Yes. Yes. And sons are much better for mothers. So therefore, if we're talking about favoritism and neither of us are admitting a thing, there is that relationship, is there not? My daughter says it to me all the time. She yeah. says that I let my son away with blue murder. And I keep saying, no, I don't. She said, you don't even realise you're doing yes. it. And I, my mother used to say to my, my father, John, will you talk to your daughter? And he would smile at me no matter what I was doing and go, Hello, daughter. How are you? <laughs> yeah. So the thing is, people listening, parents listening, shouldn't be panicking here. This no. is a very, this is a very normal reaction. I'm part of the whole uh, 
parenting and, and child thing. I think it? the only thing to watch out for that sometimes we tend to put children into boxes. You know, you have the responsible one, the wild one, you know, and, and it's very, very hard to get out of that sort of box is if it? you're put into it. Yes, I think it is. I think if your your family have you in a box and of course, you know, they know what buttons to press because they've installed the buttons. So um, it can be hard to get out of that sort of a, a category if you're known as the quiet one and you want to go a bit wild. What you do is you go into politics. 53106, your thoughts uh, for 30 cents. My guest on the independent columnist, uh, Carl Hunt, and uh, not not has been satisfied with being beaten in Dunleary right down. She wants to go through the whole process again. It's a whole new in type the of Shannon, the NUI. Um, but the other thing is, though, that because all children in the same family are different, we often wonder, do they even have the same parents? It's absolutely natural that you have a different relationship, therefore, with each of them. Isn't that so? Exactly, exactly. And you shouldn't apologise for that. As long as you, you're doing your best and you're keeping the lines of communication open and you can talk to them about everything. And if they have got a problem, or, or sometimes you can. I mean, you can, unbeknownst to yourself, show more attention and show more approval for one child than the other. And if the other one pulls you up on it, you have to listen and say, OK, am I actually doing something here? Um, is there a bias that I'm not aware of? So just always be aware of what you're doing. Yeah, but I mean, like if you're a father, it's interesting, you know um, you, you might have a battle with your daughter about going to the Wesley disco on Friday night, which you'd never have a battle with your son about going to the Wesley I'll disco. I'll tell you, my dad used to collect me from the Wesley disco half an hour before it ended, every single time because he said the last half hour was when you got the shift and there was no way that was happening to his daughter <laughs> so no matter what time it finished at, half an hour early. Really? Yes. But I hope you did. You dress like some of the girls I see. Oh no! When I, that was a long time when I was going. All the the full length Indian dresses were in, so I was very. It was akin to a burqa, what we used to go out wearing. Really, yeah, and you didn't buy alcohol, underage alcohol, oh, or anything like that. Absolutely not. God, that you, you were a model of behaviour. I was. I was. Uh, my guest. Uh, Contender in the NUI uh, in the Shant. 29 names or 30? 30, 30 names, yes. 30 names. Okay, Carol Hunt. Uh, but you can also read her uh, then in the Sunday Independent every every Sunday. Carol, thank you for joining me. Thank you, George. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie well, I'm joined now by um, entrepreneur, author, uh, businessman, Enda O'Kanin, uh, who is an independent candidate for the Shannon at NUI. Enda, welcome to the programme. Good evening. Uh, but but you have a very interesting suggestion about government ministers. What's the well, thought? Well, it, it's really part of a bigger picture. It's out-of-the-box thinking. Um, education is one of the core pillars that I've been going forward with the, the NUI panel. And... With, within that, you know, it's not we're educating people for 20th century jobs that don't exist because it's the 21st century. And a derivation of that is, you know, it's lifelong learning uh, technology. The whole education process is revolutionizing and it's kind of lateral thinking. I think that's what Shannon Aaron is about. It's policy out of the box thinking. And you've got to really start at the top. And, uh, you know, no disrespect, but. And we have some excellent politicians. But, you know, think of it this way. If if you have a transatlantic airliner, jumbo jet, and there's 300 passengers, and the passengers elect somebody they like, he has a strategy. He wants to take us to New York, right? <laughs> you know, would you put him at the controls as a pilot if he had no training as a pilot? It's as fundamental as that. You know, modern government departments are very complex, intricate things. Now, I'm not saying that the minister goes in and runs those. There are some excellent civil service. But this concept of uh, lifelong learning, I mean, I've talked to very senior advisors, brilliant people who landed in day one advisor to very senior ministry, sometimes takes them six months or a year before they learn the ropes. When the knowledge is out there, so a three, four week induction course, it's it's quite logic. Uh, so, you know, so the whole concept I'm saying is it, it must come from the top. No disrespect to the politicians, but they've had no training whatsoever. The only training they get is how to stand in front of a microphone or look good on TV. They get no training in actually how to run quite but large it, enterprises. Uh, uh, that may sound like a good idea, but uh, there are a couple of thoughts struck me. I mean, one, the, the, the biggest single profession in Dolan 
used to be and probably still is school teachers. So the Minister for Finance, I think, is a former school teacher. The Taoiseach is a former school teacher and it goes on. Now, with the best will in the world, no matter how good the induction course is, it's asking a bit to to, uh, turn... it's, It's just luck that Michael Noonan becomes a good Minister for Finance. But why should we put our taxpayers' money, why should we put our destiny to luck, whether the luck or the draw, we happen to get a good minister who knows his portfolio? You know, I, I think it's a matter of risk reduction. It doesn't take much smarts to 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 learn the brief. It doesn't say, I mean, school teachers are classic. You, you do three or four years to train as a teacher and that's all the training they do sometimes for the rest of their lives. This concept, and this is one of the themes I'm pushing on the Shannon Aaron campaign, is this concept of lifelong learning and reinventing the whole education process. And it's not necessarily about having the money or the resources to but, do it. But the Americans, I, they have a different system because they have the president who's chief executive. But, but they don't elect... Uh, they don't pick elected politicians to be the equivalent of the Minister for Defence, Finance or otherwise. They go out and they get the best people Correct. in in industry for argument's sake. So famously you had uh, Lyndon Johnson got the guy McNamara I think his name was from the Ford Motor Robert McNamara from the Ford Motor Company and Kennedy got some of the best brains he could find in his cabinet. Their system is different. Absolutely. So, and I think we have to rethink the system. And that's what's going on at the moment. Uh, people know it's wrong. They can't put their finger on it. And I don't necessarily, I'm not going to boil the ocean here and going forward for the Shannon. I just want to make a contribution to the debate. But sometimes the simple things are very obvious. And if, if the system is flawed, you know, uh, you know, why don't we get out of the box some lateral thinking? It wouldn't take a lot and to reinvent the system. But it would take a lot in the sense that the, the you know, 60, 70-odd TDs who are elected for the government party under normal general election situations, they would be pretty teed off then if they didn't get the job and the car and everything goes with it. I mean, Gareth Fitzgerald picked the fellow, Shannon, interestingly, you talking about your campaign if you get elected to the Shannon, it, it was a fellow called Jim Doog and he was Minister for Foreign Affairs, I think. That didn't go down very well with the the backbench TDs in Finnegan. And I've thought about that and I agree with you. But I'm not saying to substitute the democratic process. People need to be elected that go into these positions and they need to but be the representatives. But the Americans don't do it. Yeah, but they, they have elected representatives. But what I'm saying here is it's an Irish solution to an Irish issue. The people who are elected, if it's part of the process that they get two or three weeks induction, there's a lot of retired, excellent people who would be subjective. There's a lot of knowledge out there. Instead, and I've talked to people who've got portfolios and advisors, they arrive in their one they get a, 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 a dossier briefing of a file from the Secretary General of the Department and away you go. And we're entrusting millions and billions of pounds here. It's not, not being disrespectful to the people doing it. They do the best within their ability. So Shannon Aaron, uh, as I see it, can be a platform for independent but thinking. Uh, yes, OK. But the, the, the thing is that, in fact, the minister doesn't really. The minister's... Uh, as we've seen some high-profile cases, we, we suddenly discovered that, no, it was the Secretary-General of the Department was the key guy. It's the, the real government is the civil service. Yeah, but George, you're, you're getting me wrong. You're, you're very negative on this idea. No, I'm, I'm, I'm not talking negative. About in, I mean, I'm talking I'm about bringing in... The, the, no, no, I'm talking idea. about bringing in the concept of entrepreneurship, a new way of thinking, a new way of doing things. So I've put out what I think is a very dynamic concept. So already you're spending your time saying why it won't work. Why not have a conversation as to how it could work no, and the benefits it brings? But that's what you're advocating. You're advocating about how it could work. Correct. correct. That's what you're doing. Correct. You know, I'm only asking you why it mightn't work. Um, the, 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 the other problem surely is that, it, I mean, under normal circumstances, you hope that you're going to have a government for five years. Now, 
I'm I'm not talking about the new system as espoused and and advocated by you in the uh, um because you're an entrepreneur and I read your book and like you you didn't look like you were going to be much of a success at 17 years of age but you know by this idea of long term long lifelong learning that you talked about you made something out of yourself I get that so therefore I get the enthusiasm that you would show for this idea but the but you could imagine Imagine some guy going into foreign affairs, he works his butt off, he's really got it, and then suddenly the teacher after two years announces a reshuffle, and he says, listen, you're out of foreign affairs now, you're into health. And it's really interesting about this, because I think the system's flawed, so I'm with you about change, okay. right, I'm with you about change, okay. but the system is flawed. The last two health ministers have been doctors without an appreciable change in our in our health system. Yeah, I mean, there's nobody in disagreement. Uh, health is a core to the economy, it's core to people's welfare, and there's virtually no difference, uh, perhaps, uh, in economic philosophy between the parties. I'm talking about putting in real long-term uh, management and solutions. Now, this is this is only part of the solution. Uh, what I'm proposing can be done with relatively modest expenditure. The chap who gets the portfolio, you know, he may be there for two years, but what's wrong with having a two, three week uh, induction course, an objective induction course, not to take away from the democratic process. He's elected to implement a solution, well, but why yeah. not help him? He should welcome, he should get the tools to implement the solution. Yeah, I mean, what you're doing here is, I think, uh, and uh, my guest is Endo O'Kanin, and who also, as he's already mentioned, is standing for the Shannon in the NUI constituency, but, and, and, and Endo's view, which is expressed forcibly, is the idea of lifelong learning for for ministers that they learn something about the portfolio before they start the job but the other I often thought like if you if you look over the last 30 or 40 years would if the t-shirt today had say hired Tony O'Reilly or Michael O'Leary or you and I could probably if we got a sheet of paper we could pull in a pretty interesting kind of cabinet couldn't we but that will mean that we'll have to ha if you want to bring this kind of cabinet of all talents you're going to have to change the way we do politics isn't no, that so no I don't, I don't I'm not proposing that no I know I, you're I think, not I think there's two different if you were to yeah. do it yeah, I don't think that you have to have the democratic process. You can't just bring in subhead honcho. He has to be of the people. He has to come from the yeah. people. I'm talking about the people who come from the yes. people to so help it. them implement what the, the the electorate want. Do you see what I'm saying? Because they're, when you have unelected people, there can be a total disconnect or sometimes politicians get removed from the electorate. So what I'm proposing is not necessarily radical, but it's part of a an ongoing there, there does need to be a radical rethink. And I think Shannon Aaron, you know, I'm under no illusions, we're not going to boil the ocean here, but Shannon Aaron uh, desperately needs reform and this can be part of the well, reform process. It, it, the whole point about Shannon Aaron, if we just look at that very briefly, was when there was the suggestion by uh, Enda Kenny that they would uh, close down Shannon Aaron, it was really interesting that first of all the people voted no right and the second thing was it suddenly brought a ton of people out talking about the Shannon about how a reformed Shannon could have had real value so what we do need is we need a, a, a higher that higher house to be doing it there there is an area when it was first when it was first uh, thought about originally wasn't the idea like they brought in Yates for instance and Correct. the whole yeah. idea was of having an agricultural panel that you would have people who were experts in agriculture and, and so on it, or even like the NUI that you were going to bring in people with academic or business achievement what it didn't envisage was that a bunch of fellows who didn't get elected in the <laughs> general election were going to do it yeah, it's, be it's, so? be it's become a jungle and I'm not reinventing the wheel here uh, Senator Morris Manning, several others. There have been some excellent reports on reform. But there's an enormous opportunity. You know, if you look at the diaspora alone, you know, we have diaspora all around the world. Yeah. We have embassies in place. You could easily have them as magnets 
They can register electronically to vote. They can vote in the presidential elections. They can vote in senators for East Coast of the US, West Coast of the US, Australia. We can redefine our identity as a people, not necessarily to be driven by money or economics, but the the, the Senate can play a sort of a cultural role, a diaspora, a linkage role. Ultimately, that has economic benefit. And that's what I'm talking about, education. Re- redefining what it is, redefining lifelong learning. So the Shannad, you know, so that's an obvious reform that actually hasn't come in any of the reform documents where you have senators from different parts of the world. So we define Ireland not necessarily by territory, though, you know, seven-eighths of Ireland is underwater. Yeah, okay, with huge but, but that's issue. a very interesting point, actually, the idea about diaspora, because... If you look at uh, government records of the late 40s, after World War II, de Valera was actually terrified that the Irish in England, in England would come back, <laughs> that they would come back with nasty ideas of socialism and things like that. Whereas now in the 21st century, we have a much more positive view of our people abroad, particularly so many of them being young people. If you look at Australia and, and Canada and America and, and Britain, young people who could play, and I'm not talking about young people, young people, I'm talking about people a lot younger than me, who could play a really vibrant role in the development of the country. But just just think, all of those Irish people in Australia with Irish passports, supposing they registered at the embassy, it's very cheap to do. They could then have a vote in the Shannon area and the presidential elections, and they could have a senator representing the diaspora in Australia. Now, that would bring huge economic benefits ultimately to Ireland. You could have the same for Canada. You could have one for China. You could have, you know, 10 geographic spots around the world. So there's, there's an awful lot that can be done by out-of-the-box thinking. And Shannon needs to be a, a cultural, uh, even sport areas, it, it should not be another doll. Some of the reforms being proposed are trying to make it similar to another doll. It should not be that. So we need out-of-the-box thinking and the education idea you know, fits in with the whole entrepreneurship okay. team. Alright, Endo Kaneen, um, as you know uh, well, uh, entrepreneurs, books are great read about how you go from uh, a very difficult 16 or 17 year old to a fellow who can actually make some money. He also is an independent candidate for the Shannon in the NUI constituency.